Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at elections, politics, and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith, news editor with the Dorchester Reporter. So for those of you who are listening later and not listening to the live event, we are here live at WeWork Boston, high atop Beacon Hill. Beautiful <laughs> views, beautiful space, beautiful audience. Yes, beautiful audience that may, to any later listeners, be a little bit loud if they feel really enthusiastic about Senate policy and whoop. <laughs> so they that's do what, they wouldn't be here. I, be I'd imagine that would yes. be the case on a Wednesday. So we have all that. We have sort of average to mediocre hosts. Yeah. We've got pretty much everything that we Great need. puns, but like we're fine. Yeah, horse race <laughs> gifts. Um, anyway, so we wanted to do a couple things here at the top. One is we've asked all of you and uh, many people on Twitter for feedback about what the horse race should be in the year ahead because we've had um, a lot of elections in recent in sort of since we started the horse race to talk about, but 2019 is a bit of a different time. There's no big state elections coming up or anything, so we wanted to know what did you all want to see from the horse race? What things should we focus on? And we did get a lot of interesting feedback on Twitter, email, hate mail, all kinds of things. People walking to me after civic meetings. Uh, and one of the things that we heard a lot of is, yeah, there, there should be more attention paid to local elections. For instance, we've got a city council at large race coming our way that we'll talk about in a little bit. But more than that, also just kind of using the opportunity to do some deep dives into policy, really breaking down some of the issues that are actually occupying people's time, not just who's actually running for election, but how they govern once they get there. So right. we're going to be doing that. Yep, definitely. And of course, the presidential primary, which is definitely going to feature, feature at least one candidate from Massachusetts, will also be taking a look at that. Also, obviously, horse race puns, horse race gifts. Again, singing, I maintain we can't dancing. do a horse race gif when it's an audio-only <laughs> medium. That's not going to work. We're going to push the envelope, Jen. We are not going to push, gonna the, push envelope. the envelope. We are staying in the envelope. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to do a little bit of a rundown here at the top, talk a little bit about where things are, um, federally, start at the top, federal, state, and local, um, and just set the stage a little bit for the rest of the discussion that we're going to be having this evening. So the big one, of course, as we know, on the federal level, the government is shut down. It's been shut down for about three weeks over a dispute about funding the border wall, if there is, in fact, a border wall to fund. So we're kind of in the middle of that right now, and it's having some local Massachusetts impacts as well. But Massachusetts now kind of has a seat at the table because of our delegation. That's right. We're so, we've gone from sort of the outside to the inside as far as Congress goes. We, for a long time, you know, we have an all-Democrat de all delegation, as we have talked about many, many times. <laughs> um, so that meant when the Republicans were in control of both houses and the White House that Democrats and the Massachusetts delegation were kind of on the outside. Now they're very much on the inside. Yeah, we're very hip now. We've got uh, <laughs> one, of our, one of our earlier live podcasts. We had uh, Rep. Catherine Clark, of course, who's now the vice chair of the Democratic Caucus. Um, and then we've got Jim McGovern, who was also on another of our special holiday podcasts. So shameless plug, shameless yes, plug. Definitely go listen to that one also, because yeah. among other things, he is going to be, he explained what the rules committee is. Yeah, he's going to be the chair of the rules committee. Right. And Which it, sounds boring. It sounds, someone described it as uh, eating your broccoli, but I think broccoli is delicious and everyone should know what the <laughs> rules committee does. So we've of course got Jim McGovern at the rules committee. We've got Richard Neal as uh, chair of ways and means. And then we also have two really interesting new members of the delegation, both women, Ayanna Presley and Lori Drahan. And both of them are in their way historic figures. Ayanna Presley is the first woman of color we've ever sent to represent the uh, state in Congress. And Laura Drahan actually was handed over the seat from the only woman to ever hand it over to another woman in the uh, Massachusetts delegation. So those are both very interesting in Congress, and I think they're getting settled in all right. Yep, and we had uh, both of them actually on the horse race in the last month or so also, so go back and listen to those, um, talking about sort of their own elections and also what they saw coming down the pike as far as policy goes. So we'll be keeping a close eye on what they're doing in Washington um, for the year ahead as well. Um, but let's talk about what we have been talking about in the horse race, which is elections, because we have one big one that's just starting. The gates have flown open. The horses are... <laughs> Charging down, Barreling down the stretch. Part of the, okay, yes, that's there what we go. Doing. That'll yes. do. Yeah, so the 2020 election, of course, is most relevant right now because we have at least one Massachusetts name in contention, Senator Elizabeth Warren. And uh, we may end up having a few more Massachusetts connections. Deval Patrick, former governor, says he's not running. But, you know, Carrie's name has been floated, and there's usually someone who's passed through Massachusetts at one point in their life, and we will claim them. 
We will. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Weld, Jill Stein, you know, there's always, there's always names. Exactly. Um, anyway, so, so we'll definitely be keeping a close eye on that. Um, and we have Vicki McGrain here from the Boston Globe to talk about that. She's done a lot of, I think, super interesting writing on Elizabeth Warren, so check that out if you'd like um, some really nuanced and interesting thoughts on Elizabeth Warren's run, uh, run for president and, and how she's done it so far. Um, but let's move on to state policy because that's going to be another big, big thing that we're going to be focus on, focusing on both here and throughout the year. Yeah, so when you're thinking about the inaugural speeches that were given by, of course, Governor Baker, but also um, Senate President Karen Spilka, who's with us today, and also Speaker of the House uh, Bob DeLeo. There's a long list of things that we're discussing yeah. these days as far as it's the priority. Everything. It's everything. Yeah. It feels like the world is ending if you actually listen to the lists of things they're rattling off. You've got housing. You've got transit. You've got the waters are rising because the climate's an issue. Um, you've got education and health care that need funding. And the big question, of course, is how exactly we pay for this. So we're going to be getting into that a little bit later. Um, but uh, I guess the, the next question is Charlie Baker. What's yeah. <laughs> what's the future for him? We debated whether or not it was too early to start the race on 2022 since they just took it's, off. It's never too early. It's just um, a really long race. It's yeah. whatever the horse version of cross country is. Okay. But if, so, if there is something. <laughs> so we'll figure that out later. But yeah, I mean, whether or not he actually decides to run again for another term and what we've learned, I suppose, from Jay Gonzalez's race is that it's hard for a Democrat to unseat an incumbent governor that's as popular as Charlie Baker. Even if you've got Elizabeth Warren in your corner, you can't just have the backing of popular Democrats. You may actually need to be a popular state Democrat already. That's so right. that's we right. will and see. How Charlie Baker chooses to govern for the next term also is quite, it will be quite interesting. I mean, you could, I, I, you could attribute a lot of the things he did to the first term, either to his natural caution or to the fact that he was planning to run for re-election. So, you know, so far it seems like he's out, outlined a set of priorities that are pretty similar to what he did in the first term, mm -hmm. you know, focusing on some different things, but not like a huge change in style, not doing what the, the, the uh, phrase spending your political capital, <laughs> you know, he uses that he says it's going to be, you know, nonstop pedal to the metal, ready to rock, and then outline some pretty the boring best way to describe things. incrementalism I've ever heard. <laughs> exactly, so, but of is. course, the thing nearest and dearest to my heart is city politics. Yes. And that's the other thing, local elections, local, local politics, local elections. So uh, for anyone listening, listening or being here live. Of course, this is Wednesday. So today there was the first city council meeting of the year where new uh, city councilor at large, Althea Garrison, was sworn in to replace Ayanna Presley, who of course has gone on to Congress. And uh, with her absence, it means that we get to gear up for the only really big Boston election, which is the at-large city council race. And if that sounds thrilling, you are not wrong. Uh, in there the right are, place. We'll there are already, to the right already six people who are going to be running against all of the incumbents who have said that they will be running again. So, you know, it's going to be it's going to be chaos. All bets are off. We're looking forward to a pretty interesting municipal race. That's right. In 2019, sort of zooming out a little bit. I mean, that's what 2019 is really about. Um, we'll have municipal elections. We'll have uh, two and a half overrides and a lot of town, cities and towns looking to raise money for various things. Um, there will inevitably be some special elections when um, legislators are appointed to things or decide to run run for some other office or step down and that sort of thing. And we at the horse race are here for all of that. It's our favorite thing, elections. Municipal it, elections. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's also an appeal to, to you here in the room and you listening um, later on is if there's an election that's happening in your town, that, that you, especially if you know somebody who's really uh, good and smart on it, send it our way because we'd love to know about it. We'd love to cover it. There's not enough... There's, I would say there's not nearly enough local election and local politics coverage. Obviously, we can't cover all 351 cities and towns, but if we can even take a look at something that's of interest to you, we'd love to do that. Send it our way. Yeah, because if it was down to me and Steve in our local races, all we would cover is Boston and Melrose, and that is not acceptable. And there is a mayoral in Melrose and Ex an override. <laughs> we know, Steve. You'll hear about it. <laughs> but that really brings us to our guest this evening. So... Let's kick it off. Let's do it. So our first guest will be right in the middle of the issues we discussed at the top of the pod. Karen Spilka has served in the state Senate since 2005, but ascended to Senate president last year. Her presidency comes after a period of turmoil in the Senate, culminating in former President Stan Rosenberg's resignation amid scandal and investigation. As she takes the reins, the legislature's to-do list is a long one. Transit, education, housing, looming climate change, opioids, and more are all going to be on the Senate's plate under her tenure. And of course, there's the ever-present question of how the Commonwealth will fund things that voters want to do. And we're going to get into those issues, so please help us give a warm welcome to Massachusetts State Senate President Karen Spilka. 
thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting. So we're going to start off with the situation that we kind of mentioned at the top, which is, of course, the federal government. And as the shutdown continues to go on, we're seeing its impacts locally, whether that means buildings that are national archives run, like the JFK Library is shut down. Um, there's some Boston Public Library uh, planning and events that can no longer operate because they rely on federal funding. Questions around whether or not Logan Airport workers can be paid, food stamps will go out of effect in January. So what are you keeping an eye on personally on the state level as far as the impact of the federal shutdown, and what can the state legislature do about it? Well, I know I've had discussions with the speaker and uh, the governor. This was an issue that, that the three of us discussed, just monitoring what number of, of state employees, the people who live in the state that might be impacted directly or indirectly, uh, the families that are impacted, and the, the benefits that we may need to provide, whether it be uh, TANF or food stamps or anything else along the way to help families keep going. So it may fall on the state, Massachusetts, and other states across the country to help these families out. Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? What resources do we have in place for it? It sometimes feels like Massachusetts can kind of be playing cleanup for the federal government in cases like this. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Especially lately. Mm -hmm. So we would have to rely upon some, some funding. Right now, uh, so far this past month, uh, our revenue went down. We do we were a 500 million above benchmark before that at the end of, of uh, the month previously. We do believe that December, a lot of the people that filed estimated payments normally filed in December that with the new federal tax code they're filing in January. So we are also monitoring that and we are we do believe in the in talking with the folks at DOR, the Secretary of Administration and Finance, that that will catch up, that the money will still be paid through estimated payments will just be a little bit later. Great. So let's talk a little bit then about the Senate itself and sort of how the Senate will run over the next few years. Because um, it has, there we have, we're just coming out of sort of a rough patch, I guess would be a good way to describe it. Um, so what, what, in your view, needs to be done to restore a sense of stability for the members themselves and sort of letting them do their day-to-day -day jobs? Well, uh, you know, we, you're right. We did have a tough period, although we had a very productive year, year last year. We did a lot of bills. We passed a lot of legislation, and we kept the, the ball moving forward, so to speak. I believe the last few months I've met with every single senator, both Democrat and Republican, to talk about what they want to accomplish this upcoming session, what their committee desires are, uh, what their districts are like. I met with the returning, and, and since the election, I've met with the new newer senators as well to get to know them. We are working together. We had a retreat. We talked about the culture of the Senate, our values, our common values. What can we do? How can we work together better to accomplish what we want to accomplish? My, my way of uh, leadership has always been collaborative. I'm a prior social worker, a, a labor lawyer, arbitrator, mediator. Uh, so a lot of my background is listening, bringing people to consensus to, to get things done. So uh, that's how I feel that my leadership style will be as Senate president as well. I believe that the Senate chairs should be have, be empowered to, to move the bills, the working with the sponsors, uh, and to give direction. And uh, I, I believe a lot of the issues that we need to address, you've already mentioned, but there are issues in common with the, the governor, it was interesting last Wednesday when we were all the legislature was, was sworn in, uh, the issues that I talked about were transportation and uh, education reform, which was my springboard to run for the legislature originally, housing and health care. But I also talked about mental illness and mental health and using that as getting rid of the stigma and um, parity to work with addiction as well. The governor had a lot of the same. So does the speaker. So it's, it's all of us working together to get, get the, the bills through. And one thing, of course, that you mentioned was aiming for more collaborativeness, uh, aiming to basically touch base with all of the other senators that, that are under your tenure really now. What's the impact been of the instability? So, for instance, you were just reelected to your first two-year term. Was What was the morale like? Um, was there anything, you said you had a productive year, was there anything that was kind of left on the table that you wanted to get to that you weren't able to as this last session closed out? There's always things left on the table that we 
that we wanted to get to. That we were so close to the edge reform, getting that passed, and at the last minute it didn't happen, but that sets it up in a much better way for us to get it done this session. We were so close to healthcare reform. The Senate worked with the Millbank Foundation. We, we really were, looked at ways to cost save and, and new ways to, to help uh, shave, uh, increase access and quality, but lower costs. Um, we, we came really close to, uh, there's a gender uh, license bill that to be able to have people sign X I would like to get that through. And there, there's, there's always things that's left on the table. You know, you feel like you get a lot done, but fortunately or unfortunately, there's always more to do. It often feels like one of the, the uh, I guess, explanations that's given for why things don't get done is that the time runs out. And it, it <clears throat> appears to, uh, I guess, outside observers that it seems like a lot happens at the very last minute. Why is that? And is there any way to change it so you know, things don't not get done because the time just runs out? Ed reform is very complex. It's probably one of the most complex statues that, that we have in the state. Healthcare. I mean, it, it, you know, Massachusetts has led the way in healthcare reform, and still that is an incredibly complex area of the law and the whole system of healthcare delivery. So it, it's not uncommon for as, as much as the House and Senate are working together, even at, you know, often with the administration, for things to take a while. We meet with experts, we meet with people in the field, we meet with advocates, we meet with consumers, and along the way, people have ideas and, and concerns or support or, or they're against, they have opposition. So that's part of the legislative process, and it usually does take more than one session to get something done. Uh, we, we are working on those areas. So even if you know we move the earlier day to report bills out of committee, and I think that helped, but again, it's not that uncommon. And the whole process, when it was written in our Constitution, was to make bills go through the process slowly because changing laws is a big deal. So you want it to be thoughtful and, and you know, we work hard at it and, and it will set the stage so that this session we will hopefully be able to get them done sooner rather than later. And one of the bills, of course, that you mentioned was the education reform uh, bill, and that did make it through the Senate, but then got stopped at the House. It got a little bit clogged up there. That seems to be a bit of a pattern watching this, this happen. How are you feeling these days about the way that the House and the Senate are interacting? I think that we have a great relationship. The House did pass a bill. The Senate mm -hmm. passed ed reform, I think, three times. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the House passed its own version of the bill, which is normal, the normal process. We, you know, we do one version, they do another. The conference committee meets and tries to hash out the differences. Again, we came really, really close to, to getting the job done. Uh, but overall, the relationship, I believe, I've known Bob DeLeo since when I was in the House. And uh, there are still, it's been a lot of turnover, but there's a lot of people that, that I still know. And there's a lot of great people that have come into the House, just like some of the new, the, the new senators. They're passionate, articulate, caring. They all want to roll up their sleeves and get, get work done. Should we expect then at the end of this session to have sort of the 50 car pileup we've become become used to or sorry sorry horse pileup the horse pileup whatever the 50 horse pileup the scrum um, or it, it, it often seems like there's a lot of action that happens right at the end um, do any of the process changes that you're describing move any of that back to the middle of the session or will we sort of have this desperate scramble at the end of this session as well you know I hope so I have control over the Senate so I'm hoping that uh, we can get the bills through the committee process, get them reported out. We now have bills, if they originated in the Senate, after the committee hearing, they go back to the Senate. If they originated in the House, they go back to the House. So we have more control over our Senate bills. So I'm hoping that we continue to get them through the process, report them out, get them to the Senate, work on them, and get them done. So uh, in your speech last week, uh, opening the new term, you said this, the time for small ideas and incremental change is over. Governor Baker's inaugural address outlined how big ideas are implemented frame by frame by many players who write it over time. So how do you square those two ideas of how state government should work? Just like the opioid bill, we have done a new opioid bill the last three sessions. Things change so much, and there's new best practices, new theories, new medicines, new drugs, unfortunately. So I do believe that we will be doing an opioid addiction drug probably, unfortunately, every session for this coming, this, this session and the next few sessions. Uh, I'm hoping to, to 
pull it in with mental health a lot more this time because I do believe not all but a lot of addiction is an, uh, is an, a symptom of unmet mental health needs. Um, so that, so th that will keep do going. Um, I do believe that we did a lot in say the area of climate change but there still is so much more to do and there is a real sense of urgency especially with the new reports coming out. Uh, there's a real sense of urgency that if the federal government isn't going to act which it probably won't right now then the states need to take the, the lead. Massachusetts has been a leader in so many areas from the Revolutionary War all the way to equal marriage and beyond. We need, I believe, to be a bit more bold and innovative and creative. Those are our strengths to pull back the mantle of being ahead of the other states in climate change, ed reform to continue, and healthcare to continue. Transportation, uh, you know, we've, a lot of the states have let that go. Everywhere I go, transportation is one of the biggest issues, and then housing. So we, need, we really need to focus on those as, as well as other issues, but we need to move the ball further a little bit more than we have been. Which, of Let's, course, brings it to revenue and how to pay for it. Absolutely. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, ask you to drill down a little bit on one thing, which is climate change, because I've, um, <clears throat> I've heard a bit more, I think, on all the other policy areas that you just outlined about what kinds of things are on the table. What is on the table or what's being considered as far as ways to deal with and mitigate climate change? Well, we did a very comprehensive bill, the Senate last session. Uh, we will take a look at that and look at what other states have done and best practices again. I think we can look, continue to look. The House and the Senate have been leaders with wind, offshore wind energy to take a look at that. And that is coming out a lot less expensive than was predicted. The more we can wean ourselves off of fossil fuel, the better off we are. Uh, I, I believe that that also gives us an opportunity for job creation. If Just like we were ahead of the curve than most of the other New England states on the offshore wind. And part of the reason why we, we were so keen on passing that was so that we would be the first state on the East Coast and the companies from Europe who had the jobs would come to Massachusetts, and that's exactly what's happening. They're building their headquarters here, creating job opportunities in clean energy jobs, which is great. So uh, the more that we do things like that, I believe the better off we are. And so you've listed as some of your priorities, education, funding, housing, mental health. The state has a revenue problem, as you as you noted, and one of the potential solutions for that, uh, the millionaire's tax, was unsuccessful. Do you have hopes that that would come back? Uh, it's been cited as a possible way to pay for a number of very ambitious billion-plus-dollar projects. I believe it, that people are talking about it, both the advocates looking at a possibility of another ballot initiative, as well as uh, some of the legislators looking at filing bills to do it. Uh, I was a supporter of the millionaire's tax. I am still a supporter of the millionaire's tax. I do believe, I don't know that many there, but I do believe that if they have, somebody has a million dollars or more that they, it would be great for them to chip in a little bit more to help provide the services. Income inequality, Massachusetts unfortunately <coughs> leads the nation with income inequality too. Uh, so I do believe that we've done that, uh, that we need to work on that. We increased dramatically the EITC, the Earned Income Tax Credit, to help people at the low income. That has been proven to be one of the best ways to raise up the, the low income, uh, you know, the, the folks that are struggling. Uh, so we, I think that's one thing. The other thing that I would like to do is, uh, in looking at our tax code, uh, it's ancient. It is ancient. It's based on a commerce system and, a, and an economic system of the 20th century and literally some aspects probably the 19th century. We are passing bills in the legislature like the ride share or the home share and there's so many others coming down that it takes the legislature a while to, to, to get something done, not only to capture the revenue but to set up the laws and regulations so that uh, there's not the same confusion that the industry, whatever the industry is, or the government officials, the city, town, and the consumers are stuck with this, this confusion of, of what to do. So we. I do believe, and I don't have the answers, I would like to have the chair, the Senate chair of the Revenue Committee do a working group. I don't know if we, uh, government sometimes responds. It's more of a crisis or in a short term. We need to take a long-term look. So this is a long-term uh, issue that to have a, a, a good working group look at 
our commerce, our structure, our economic development? How can we make some changes to the tax code to uh, capture that revenue and to be more proactive in these areas? I think that would benefit not only the Commonwealth, but all the residents of the Commonwealth. So is it, you're describing sort of ways to get revenue from other sources. Is it where the revenue is coming from, how it's coming in, or is it the amount of revenue? Um, and I ask that because there was, a, there was the um, announcement this morning, or the, the push, I guess, for, implement, for the legislation that would implement the recommendations of the um, education, the 2015 Education Commission, which the estimates in the articles that I read said was a $1 to $2 billion item. You've got transportation, which the needs are in the billions, you know, how many billions, I think, depends on who you listen to. But uh, is it, it, do we have enough revenue, I guess, is the short version of the very long question I just asked. Well, this is where I believe having the House, the Senate, and the governor really talk about what do we want to accomplish in the next not only two years, but four years. Again, looking at a longer view than, than sometimes has happened in the past. So let's come to some agreement as to what do we want to accomplish in the areas that you've just all touched on, and how are we going to pay for it? Some of it, you know, the, for example, you mentioned the Ed reform, the Foundation Budget Review Commission's recommendations. The Senate has passed that a few times, so we, but it, we haven't come to an agreement. The House passed it, there was no final bill, and yet it has been a Senate priority as prior chair of Ways and Means. We have put tens of millions of dollars more into the budget to implement many parts of those uh, recommendations, the, the health care, the low income, the English language learners, even though we haven't passed the bill, we didn't have the millionaire's tax and we had no tax increase, we still have worked it out to, to add tens of millions of dollars to the budget to start implementing those recommendations. And on transportation, of course, as Steve mentioned a little bit earlier, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Do you think that the state is doing enough and quickly enough on transportation? Well, I, I believe we could always do more. I mean, there, there's always a lot more. I know the governor had a, a report that Steve Kadish, his prior chief of staff, worked on, and, and um, I've gone through it. I will continue to go through it. That's another area that I believe having a, a group Pulling together, there have been a few recent reports on transportation and infrastructure, what we need to do. Uh, I believe that we need to invest in, in um, look at the resources we have. Some of it will be making just changes, but I know, for example, regional equity is a really important thing to me, so that not only are we investing, you mentioned Boston and, and uh, Melrose, but we need to look at all areas of the state. We need to invest in the MBTA and our roads and bridges, but we also need to invest in the RTAs, the 11 RTAs that are across the state. They're the lifeline for many of the cities and towns, you know, all the way out to the New York border and north and south. Many of them don't have night service. Many of them don't have service on weekends. So for people who uh, don't, can't afford or, or, can't, or don't want to drive, what are their alternatives? We need to ensure that those areas of the state, so again, it's looking at what do we want to do, and then lay out a plan to accomplish it. Yeah. Do you have a thought, actually, on um, the proposals to bring the commuter rail up to a more regional rail style of, of transit? The rapid regional bit, rail. Yeah. Right. I mentioned that, mm -hmm. actually, in, in my uh, speech. Yeah. I know that, that um, there are some proposals as to what we could do. Some of it is infrastructure, and uh, there have been some improvements. Uh, we are continuing to, to make improvements in our regional rail. Um, but it, it is... You know, it's not just Massachusetts. So you hear people, you know, going to Korea and all the other uh, uh, countries across the world, and they have rapid train across their whole country. They can get from one border to the other in an hour or two hours. Uh, our system cannot handle that. We have not, basically, we have not invested in our transportation, our water, our sewer infrastructure uh, in a way that we should. And we have to. So I want to ask one more question going, looking ahead, which is uh, we've, we just passed automatic voter registration. Um, the, the big question on elections and how elections are managed that seems to be coming our way in 2020 is the issue of ranked choice voting. Um, ballot, uh, ballot question proponents are already sort of raising funds and raising support um, and talking about the ballot in 2020. Is there, I guess, what's your position on ranked choice voting? And is there any chance that the legislature would pass this pre-ballot question? Uh, I I don't know if the legislature will or will not. I want to find out more. I know a few cities and towns across the state implemented it 
this past session, uh, this past election. I'd like to hear how it worked, what problems, what, 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 are, what, the, what are the pros and cons? I'd like to hear from some of the people, both the voters as well as those in the process of implementing it and counting it and, and how it worked before I comment on that. Mm -hmm. And related to that, and I think this will be the last one, is there are a lot of mechanisms in place that result in a pretty heavy incumbency advantage. One of them, of course, is the issue of who votes, how able they are to vote, but then also, of course, just funding advantages. What can be done, in your opinion, is there something that needs to be done to overcome the advantages to incumbency, especially coming out of a midterms where we saw some substantial changes as far as incumbents being ousted by new faces? Should we be making it easier for that to happen? Well, clearly it worked already. <laughs> I mean, you, you cited you know two just uh, what happened with Ayanna Presley and, and what happens in, I think that has happened across the nation this year. So there there may be a benefit you know to incumbency, but that's not the case necessarily anymore. And I think having same day registration, anything that can help get people to vote, I think is really an important change. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Senator thank President Karen Spoka, for joining us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good night. So for another angle on what's ahead for the legislature, we look to the State House of Representatives. The last few months have featured some vocal criticism of the way that the House has been run, which is not new criticism, but it came up again this year. So we have someone who's been there since the beginning on this front. So please welcome the representative for the 6th Suffolk District of Massachusetts, including Dorchester, Hyde Park, Jamaica Plain, Mattapan, and Rosendale, Russell Holmes. Thanks for being here. Good evening, Jen. How are you? I'm well. This is an interesting time to be in the house, isn't it? It's a great time. Yeah. So there's been a lot, a lot of new friends. Business. A lot of new and yeah. loud voices loud who have voices. come in. I feel like I multiplied times seven or eight. <laughs> yeah. So how are the dynamics in there these days? So dynamics for me um, is like I used to feel like I'm on an island. And now all of a sudden I've had six or seven people come and say, hey, we want to join you. And so imagine what it would be like feeling like you're on an island by yourself how lonely you would get. And now all of a sudden I have friends who text me all the time and want to chat with me. So it's a good thing to be. So for those who are not familiar, what have your objections been to the way the house has been run in the past? Uh, it's not been run. That's my objection. It's, um, it's really been uh, a dictatorship from the time I've gotten there. And I think that it's just been something that uh, someone has felt like they've, they really, as you continue to hear, feel like there's more of a kingdom. And um, the complaint has been, as you just heard, Senator Spilko talk about, uh, she talked about how she's going to push a lot of the decisions down to her chairman. When I sit around and I think about all the different activities that I've had over the last eight years, and I've had so many people, I would go to them and say, hey, you represent, let's give you a couple examples, Boston. Like you talked about, or the senator talked about what happened with uh, Uber and Lyft. Now all of a sudden we're going back to Uber and Lyft and saying, are we getting enough money? And when you are the chair of a committee who's going to release this bill, you would think that the leader, the majority leader who lives in Quincy, wouldn't be the person who's making all the decisions. So when I go to the chair and say, well, why aren't we doing $1 instead of 20 cents? And I hear, well, that's not what leadership wants. But when you think about it, 62 million rides are uh, coming or being started in the Commonwealth. 35 million of those rides are happening and beginning and originating in Boston. We should have the strongest voice. And so a chair should be able to go back to a majority leader and say, this is primarily a, a major issue for Boston. Let us make sure that if you're going to put all these cars on the road, let us make sure that we get a little bit more revenue. Let us make sure, just think about what happens with Uber. Uber has it so the way it, it happens now. I got off the plane from Ayana's event on Sunday. And when I get off the plane, there are 100 people heading towards the Uber, Uber line, and the cabs are just sitting there, literally. There are four cabs that are all just still sitting there. And you think about the amount of congestion in Boston. You think about how many people now park. All of a sudden, now a lot more people own cars. And now it's hard for me to find a parking spot on my street. And you think about all the rides that happen in the streets that are beat up. Boston should be getting a lion's share of the revenue. And those are just the type of things that happen. When you push that back up to just the leadership and not to your chairman, those are the mistakes that I think are happening in the building. 
So the, the pushback I sometimes hear is that, that uh, the House has provided in recent cycles a more reliable way of getting things done and moving things through the, the system, whereas the Senate's, uh, I guess, more freewheeling, more collaborative style. <laughs> it's been harder to know who to talk to. How do you, what's your response to that? Oh, you think that uh, we should go talk to one person? I am his equal. So when I arrived in the building, I got to the building the exact same way that the speaker got there. He went, he campaigned, he got in office. The folks who elect me are, are no less valued than the folks that elect him. And so when I arrived, there were 106 of us. Certainly, you realize the value of each one of our votes when you go and you have to ask who's going to be your next speaker. And obviously, he's going to canvass and ask all of us for, for our votes. But the moment that happened, you lose all your power. And so when you say reliability, yes, the senator is passing a lot of the influence to her, to her uh, chairs and vice chairs. And as she said, it should be hard to pass legislation. It should be something that you actually get to the House floor, have a debate, and then decide from a reasonable argument what's the best way to go. Not, oh, I want to make sure that I'm protecting my members and making sure they don't have to take tough votes. Tough votes, you're supposed to be there to represent the people that sent you there. And if you have a tough vote, that's the conversation you have quite literally, literally with your constituents and not what you have, one that you should be having with leadership. Folks should be, that should be the transparency that we're fighting for. And one thing that struck me earlier, you were talking about uh, being on an island of a sort. So what have the consequences been uh, for you, as far as you're concerned, in trying to find the balance between pushing back against leadership, obviously, but still needing to advocate for your district? How do you, how do you juggle that? And have there been any areas where you feel like your district may have been shorted? So my district, the reason I feel my district would never be shorted is because of the fact that there's no vote more reliable than the Democratic vote from my district. I am the most reliable Democratic voting district in the Commonwealth. And so I feel every day I walk in, I'm not, there's, there's no time where I feel like I'm gonna ever be uh, short shipped on anything. Whether that means I'm working with the governor, whether that means I'm working with uh, the leadership in the House, or working with, with Marty. I have a great relationship with the governor and Marty, and anything that seems to be not going awry, I think even the two of them, between the mayor, and the governor, if they feel like something's going awry, they make sure they take care of me. But I actually have not had anything that I feel like uh, I've missed out. Uh, if you come to my district, you will see um, a significant amount of things happening. And um, I'm a Boston rep, so that also advantages me in some ways uh, as well. Yeah. And some of the ways that your uh, your new colleagues, for instance, Liz Miranda, Nika Eloguardo, John Santiago, uh, they unseated uh, former DeLeo uh, lieutenants of a sort with Jeffrey Sanchez and Byron Rushing. And one of the things that you said that really struck me afterward uh, to Commonwealth Magazine, I believe, was that you felt that... Um, a part of the reason that they lost was because their constituents felt that they were beholden to the speaker rather than to the constituents. So what did you mean uh, when you said that? And uh, when you know, I does it tell you anything about elections in the future? The first day that I arrived in the building, I actually was walked in by the former rep, Willie Mae Allen, who was the rep before me. Mm -hmm. And she brought me in on the day that you have the farewell speeches. And she wanted me to be introduced to everybody uh, before, before she left. And on that day, I saw many folks give a farewell speech that they didn't want to give. And I realized on that day, that's never a thing I ever want to do. I never want to be, I always want to leave here on my own terms when I decide that I think I've done all the things I'm going to do. What a lesson for me. So I went to the speaker and I said, well, that was a very different experience than what I, I expected. This was when, when it was on good terms. Then I expected on my first, on my first day. And we had lost, he had lost, I came in, in in the wave of all of the conservatives. You remember there were only 15 conservatives or Republicans in the House and 10, and it was the Tea Party wave. And one of the things he said to me that day was, he said, always be beholden to your district. The people who you just saw give a speech to forgot to be beholden to their district and, and forgot to go out and talk to their constituents. And everything I've done has always made me remember that that's it. That is the thing that's most important, and I actually believe Jeff and Byron lost that perspective. And that's typically why you would lose a race. Particularly, look at Jeff's case, they spent $400,000. I think Nika may have spent $150,000 or something, or something of that nature. It is clear to me that you have to always stay contact, connected to your district. And you know, I, people say, well, why don't people run against me? I don't have any money in my account. I can tell you it's not simply because people are not interested in running. 
They don't run because of the fact that I stay focused on my district. There are four people literally now, as you talked about the folks who are running for city council at large, there are four people in my district that are pulling 1,500 signatures to run for city council at large. That's an awful lot more than 150 that you would need to be uh, a state rep. So I think they, they don't run because of the fact that they see me being consistent. So how do you balance the need to, uh, to represent and secure resources for your district with the, the uh, oft-described reality that it seems like the speaker and the speaker's team hold access to all of those resources and all, of, all sort of the power that you need to represent your district? So the question becomes, what is power, right? So if power is a couple of earmarks that you're going to get during the, during the budget process, I'm getting mine. A sportsman's going to get his money. Lena Park's going to get his money. No books, no balls going to get his money. Because I would raise uh, a major saying if, they, if I didn't get it. And that's really kind of the area that, that each one of the, the reps really work with the speaker in ways and means. The rest of it comes really through relationships with the administration and with uh, your mayor. And quite frankly, I am, I am blessed because the Black and Latino Caucus, we meet with the governor uh, every quarter, have a great relationship, have a great relationship with Anthony and his team. And, Pretty much the rest of the $42 billion, maybe you, know, you may have you know, two or $300 million in earmarks, but the other $40 billion, $42 billion is done through the administration, and I make sure that I get my cut. And uh, one thing as well that the, this last election had is it leaves you as one of the most senior people of color in the entire state house. Mm -hmm. uh, and we talk a lot about the importance of diversity and having a diverse body. And you did push for the Black and Latino Caucus to have some say in selecting the speaker. Oh, yeah. So, uh, but state government still isn't very representative in terms of gender and race. How does that change? So I'm beginning conversations now because we are very thankful to have um, obviously many women elected, and you still need to, to get to the point where we're training up folks through the party. So one of the things that you said about Nika and Liz, one of the things they were most contentious about, about the lack of support. It is still a very difficult thing for us to run, because many people of color don't have the funds that the other that whites have. And so we are trying now. I actually talked with the sheriff on yesterday. We're gonna start to organize the elected of color. We get together every two weeks to have this discussion because of the fact that it does mean there are 20 seats that are now majority of color in this commonwealth. The contention I keep having is if blacks and Latinos only have 10 of them, think about that imbalance, that if you have another 140 seats that are majority white and whites have 135 of them, if I had just the same percentage of what I would have uh, for what whites have, I would have at least 19 uh, reps in the house. But what that is is a very difficult conversation that says there are majority seats of color that are, that are represented by someone who's white. And so our push has been, one, anyone who is in a majority seat of color that is not white, that is white, we make sure they're just right on the issues. So to make sure that they're going to deliver and make sure that as we continue to push them, we continue to push them to just be right, and then we continue to just build up a better field. That's really the thought that we have today, because of the fact that those are the seats, quite frankly, we are absolutely targeting. Some of it, too, seems like it's, it's just the built-in advantage that incumbents have to run and be, be reelected with large <laughs> fundraising advantages Well, I think so it's forth. these special elections that bother me the most. You asked mm -hmm. about special elections, mm -hmm. and, and, and we're going to have some, as you said, that's going to be some of your interest. I think we shouldn't even have special elections. I think we should do elections on a cycle. Example, and this may be offensive to some, but it's the truth. Mike Moran ran once, lost to um, Golden. He ran another time, he lost to, um, I'm trying to think of, of who it was he lost to, but it was, um, can't think of who it was. But then the moment he had a special election, he had that inside politic game that he was able to go and win. And so I think that if someone quits in the middle of a session or um, quits early, we should wait to the, next to the next election cycle. So let's say you quit January. You say, okay, that seat stays open until the municipal election so that, one, we don't pay all this extra money, and then you don't have this built-up advantage that people have who are, who are all of a sudden advantaged because, in fact, they knew that person was going to quit. They know that district. And so those are the types of things, hopefully, that can also be uh, run through the system. Doubt if that will get through, but it's definitely a thing that I would like to do.
And then in terms of policy, as we've noted a few times now, there's a lot of areas that we could potentially be focusing on in this next year. Um, Transportation seems like the issue that's always on everyone's mind. And education. And education, of course. Uh, You co-chaired Mayor Walsh's Go Boston 2030. Um, I, of course, consistently note that uh, the newest line, uh, the newest station on the Fairmount line is going to be... Coming on soon. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be in the next few months that you're going to see a Blue Hill Avenue station in Mattapan. Um... $20 million. That's 20 what I'm million. saying, Steve. That's how I make sure I get my money. Um, so that was part of the mitigation from the big dig as well, was, yeah. was, that, was that station. Should we expect any legislation in the next term to be focusing on, on transportation that you're particularly excited about? Uh, no, but I can tell you what I'm going to still do, even though okay. it may not pass. So, so now, this is simple to me. Right? We need more money. You keep asking the question. One of the, the only sheet that I printed in preparation for this is I was, I printed two things. One was where are we getting money from? And the other was trying to talk about uh, how Charlie, all of a sudden, you're talking about Charlie doing well. He had uh, 6% of the vote in, uh, four years ago, and he got 36, 36% of the vote in my district, which is phenomenal mm-hmm. for a rep, I mean, for a Republican. But I think the thing that we should be doing is we should be looking at the gas tax. And I know people are going to yell, oh, it's regressive. Poor people pay more. But let me tell you, if you get in a car, you put gas in it, you should pay for the, the, the roads that you're going to be, be running on. And so I'm going to throw a bill out that today the gas tax is somewhere in the neighborhood of 26.5%. I'm going to say we should go to about what the national average is, which is right around 31 cents. It would mean somewhere in the neighborhood of another $175, $200 million. I think there's nothing that I have ever heard from anyone in the Commonwealth that it, that feels that Chapter 90 funding is incorrect or they're not getting that right share. I think those are the types of things we have to go on and make a decision on. At, charge more money on Uber, charge more money on Lyft, charge more money on Airbnb. If people use these services, they should pay for them. And certainly if you get in a car or truck or whatever you're going to get in and run on my road, you should repair it. Those are, I mean, just the, the, the thing that has been a problem is you have a speaker who leads with, we're not raising taxes. And so when you have a speaker who leads with that, and the governor leave with that, it's going to be very hard for Karen to get anything through. So I'm going to continue to push on that side. All right. Well, let's use that, use that to ask one, one last question, which is that there's been a lot of chatter about the possibility that this may be the speaker's last term. Hmm. Um, so do you think that there will be an opportunity soon for a change at the top? And if there is, will you run? I'm not running um, unless I have to. I really love um, the district I represent. And so I think that what you see with, with Karen and, and with others in leadership, you obviously have to now um, have your attention focused around the, the entire state. I still think my district needs an awful lot, and I still think that I'm some years from running for, for, uh, the, for the leadership in the House simply because of the fact that I would like to focus all my attention still on my district. But if no one is uh, willing to step up, I will run, and it's certainly not my intention to do so because I think there are uh, strong people, such as Pat Haddad, uh, who should also consider running. I think it's time for us to, to say we've, we've had no woman run the House in 380 years. How, how does that make sense? Um, so I'm hoping... <laughs> I'm hoping a woman throws their hat in the ring. Uh, obviously, if Pat is that person, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to have a whole list of things that she has to agree <laughs> to, too. But whoever that is, I, I think we have to start to just ask those questions of, what I don't want to have happen, because I'm hearing that you know the speaker is going to decide to take his three years and then and and then leave on, that's the wrong decision. One for us, we making a decision for him to to remain speaker. That was number one, a bad decision. But I'm hoping with the folks who are in the room with me now, I have some of my some of the new reps. Maria's in the room, I think, in the back. Patrick, some of that. Those people who join me on the island, we're looking at new rules to so just simply say, how is it that uh, we have a, a process moving forward? that doesn't make it so that uh, we already have a speaker decided before someone even uh, before the process begins. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Representative. Well, thank you for having me. All right, well, speaking of bids for office, our next guest knows a lot about a recent high-profile announcement regarding the highest office in the land. We'll get into that and more with her. She's a many-time guest of the pod, which means it's title time. So please help us give a warm horse race welcome to the Grand Marshal of the Massachusetts Candidates Parade and also a national political correspondent for the Boston Globe, Vicki McGrain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the royal wave. She waved from the elbow for those who are listening. <laughs> so, Elizabeth Warren. She's running. Technically, she's formed an exploratory committee. Steve. I mean, that's, that's running. She's days. running. She's yeah. running. <laughs> she's running. I have to hedge. It's journalistically responsible. But look, she's running. She's gone to Iowa. She's going to be heading to New Hampshire. This weekend. This weekend. What's she been doing? How, is, how has this reception been so far? This is her voyage out of the Bay State to go stump elsewhere. So by all accounts, her maiden voyage, if you will, in Iowa went incredibly well. And uh, the timing couldn't have been better for her. She it sort of turned around, at least for the time being, this very rough couple of months of media treatment that she had had ever since she did this now infamous DNA reveal with the, that video. And now you know, she got one question the, out of 30 plus questions she took uh, while she was out there, one question on that issue. And it didn't seem, you know, from all the coverage that came out of Iowa, it did, did not in any way seem to bog her down. And, it, you know, she had good crowds and good enthusiasm. You know, I, from what I hear within her own campaign, you know, they were very, they weren't necessarily expecting it to go that well. They are, you know, things are going, it, it went very well from their perspective. So there was a headline to an article that you wrote um, back in December, which was, it's been a rough few weeks for, the war for Warren's White House hopes. And the question was, does it matter? And this was after the Boston Globe editorial, sort of a bunch of other national media articles and all coming after the DNA test. What's your view on that now in retrospect? Did all that matter or have, is that all ancient history now? Well, my takeaway from doing that story and I, you know, t was that it, we, we don't know if it matters. And certainly the, uh, right, the kind of turnaround or, or the now we're in, she's in the upswing of her news cycle coming out of Iowa is just more evidence that, yeah, we don't know if this was some kind of fatal calculation on the, on the Warren campaign's part. I think, you know, they, they would admit that it was a risk. And, you know, if they, uh, if, if it pays off, it means in a year from now, everyone will be saying, oh, how, look how smart they were to have just gotten that out all there. Nobody's talking about it now. And you know, all of the sort of wise, grizzled campaign veterans I talked to for that story said, you know, there's going to be uh, just you know, dozens of negative uh, turns in the barrel for every candidate. And you know, that kind of goes into think, you know, a lot of people seemed to think it was very smart that Warren announced so early, which you wouldn't necessarily have expected. Um, you know, that you, you know, before the turn of the new year, she was said she was officially launching this exploratory committee. And one of the, you know, strategies you could infer was there was kind of, you know, she, she's getting out there and, and getting practice and, 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 you know, getting to turn the page on that media narrative instead of it just lingering while she's, you know, you know, pretending she's not running for president. Yeah, it does seem like there was that kind of period that was mostly almost meta media commentary yeah. where it was articles. There was nothing to cover. Articles, that was part the, of the, articles, articles being written, articles. articles covering yeah. other people, articles. Right, and people were declaring a candidate, you know, is fatally flawed before yeah. there was any actual, anybody is campaigning. We don't even so know she's, who she's going to be up against. Yeah, so she seemed to kind of, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like she turned a bit of a corner once she was no longer uh, relying necessarily on the media to create stories about her and was out there instead sort of with a campaign to run now right. and gave, actually gave talking. reporters something to actually cover cover exactly so so you mentioned so you mentioned DNA uh, the DNA test of course was only one of the questions she was getting in Iowa what are people asking Elizabeth Warren about these days well, I wasn't in Iowa, so I don't have, you know, sort of a, a, a front page or a you know, front seat view to that. I just know, and you know, talking to my colleague who was out there and reading some of the stories, that it was noteworthy that she did not get, uh, you know, hounded about that issue, like it, 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 which suggests, and it's only one data point that we have, that maybe regular folks don't really care whether about that issue as much as you know, the, the chattering classes thought they, they might or worried they might, you know, you kind of get into this, and Democrats are accused of doing this sort of maybe kind of like, you know, the, sort of to get too much in their own heads. They're worried about, well, what if like maybe still somebody, some this doesn't bother me, but maybe this will bother somebody else mm -hmm. kind of a thing. I think the other 
most noteworthy thing about her trip in Iowa was an, another absence. She did not talk about Trump. She only really mentioned Trump again when asked directly about him on one occasion. And she is somebody, you know, part of the, the kind of narrative or image that a lot of people have of her is this, you know, pugilistic Twitter nemesis of the president. And she is very deliberately, at least when she was out, you know, introducing herself to the very important voters in Iowa, not emphasizing that part. And so she was talking about her biography. She was talking about, she, she got a lot of praise and a lot uh, for having this very clear thread about why she is running that runs from her biography as someone who, you know, grew up on the ragged edge of the middle class, as she says, in Oklahoma to you know, bankruptcy expert studying how that has you know, affected Americans to running for Senate and now contemplating running for, for president. And that was something that Hillary Clinton in particular was She's criticized from all sides for not really seem, being able to articulate, well, why are you running for president other than it's your turn? One thing that surprised, I don't know if it surprised me that people didn't know that she's a pretty good retail politician, but there were, there were a lot of people that, you know, you're watching on social media, that reporters who were around who did seem kind of surprised at that. Um, but I said, I, a, 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 you know, a, a fellow reporter at another outlet, you know, texting me saying like, oh, she was actually really good, but the normals. <laughs> <laughs> the normals. Uh, and I was not as surprised about that. I mean, I've covered Elizabeth Warren from, you know, back when she's talking about blood and teeth on the floor over the CFPB. And, um, but no, she, I mean, she, she's somebody who has such a high, like, TV, social media profile. And you see, but that's just sort of one, and it is a very powerful part of who she is. Um, so that a lot of people don't, I think, haven't seen her in those settings. Um, we also here in Massachusetts have gotten the chance, because she did these 38 town halls during her run-up to the 2018 re-election, which, you know, I don't think... Elizabeth Warren and her team do anything that isn't deliberate, you know, is very good practice for what she just did there. in Iowa. And she did the same things where, you know, when she's done, she stay, sticks around and takes selfies and shakes hands and hugs with every person who wants to individually interact with her. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, kind of taking a little turn toward the other people in the field, because of course, one of the folks she always gets grouped in with is Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, as kind of being economic populists, uh, sort of the question of, is this are they in the same lane together when you've got Elizabeth Warren out there saying, no, I believe in the power of markets when they're well-regulated, and Bernie Sanders, of course, is a democratic socialist. Is it fair to be grouping them together? Are they both kind of solid picks for people who are just looking for that sort of left, leftward message, or is that missing something about the distinction between them, do you think? I think they're different people and therefore different candidates. They are very similar, though not exactly the same on all of the, the policies. Um, but I think you do, Elizabeth Warren is going to have a different style. She, uh, you know, hasn't been in politics as long as Bernie Sanders has. She, and she is, I don't think you, having covered both of them in the halls of the Senate, uh, though at that time Elizabeth Warren wasn't talking to reporters in the halls of the Senate, but I will say, you know, I've interacted a you know limited amount, but w with Bernie Sanders, you know, he's not he's not a anybody would never call him charming or you know in Likeable. a personal conversation. Like, yeah, let's get I, into you the likability conversation. Those things, I'm not sure, you know, he's not somebody you want to have necessarily have a beer with, or you know, maybe you do, but not in that George Bush kind of way that people mean that. So, oh, I mean, I'm just I'm always kind of riveted by the whole question of, of course, it consumes everyone as soon as the DNA thing is slightly off to the side. We start talking about likability in, in general and kind of what that means. So Steve wrote, I think, a very good piece actually for CNN about the issue of how we judge Warren's likability and why it might not matter. Yeah, the point of the piece, and I know you've read it already, but just for those who, who may not have, um, was just that the core of her appeal has never really been that she that she's the person that you would invite to the backyard barbecue that, or or likability to use the word that seems to be going around. That you know when she ran in 2012, the Boston Globe poll found that 
people thought Scott Brown was more likable, and they voted for Elizabeth Warren anyway. And even on election day, Scott Brown had higher favorables than Warren, but Warren won anyway, because the attributes they were voting on were not, was not likability. It was who they thought would stand up for them and who they thought agreed with them on the issues. And yeah. I thought that point was so interesting because I had, earlier in that day, actually talked with a Republican uh, operative who talking about this likability issue, and she was making the case that it's not necessarily going to be the defining, you know, it's not necessarily going to matter at a time. If, if, if the case of the matter is that this is a year where people are angry and that a populist message, you know, just like Donald Trump had a populist appeal, and he isn't, I don't think anybody thinks he's likable either. Uh, if that, that in that case, if that's the mood of the electorate, that they don't want somebody they want to have a beer with, they want somebody who's going to go in there and fix it. Uh, maybe not punch people in the, in the, in the nose, but um, they want somebody who's going to go in and clean house and take care of business. And that's not necessarily, you know, that's, the ad that is not necessarily, this, you know, likable. I think it puts reporters, especially in kind of a tricky position when we're talking about likability, because obviously, you know, it's it tends to be kind of tinged with sexism, but that doesn't mean that people aren't voting because of it. Right. You know, I'm out there reporting as well, and even from Democrats, uh, they'll say, you know, I voted for Hillary because I felt like I had to. Um, but Warren doesn't, my favorite slash least favorite quote of the week was just uh, the idea that Warren didn't have uh, oomph and it wasn't really clear what they meant by it. So I guess as you're out there, as you're reporting on this, how do reporters grapple with the idea of likability maybe not being rooted in actual policy or how someone would govern on your behalf, but people still don't like voting necessarily for people they don't like? Yeah, it's a hard one. I think what's going to be interesting in this cycle is that because of the Me Too movement, because of, you know, just the, the times that we live in, and it's all very good, you know, these are like meta conversations that we're having and people are more aware. And, you know, just the fact that that Politico story got so trashed. The one use, saying that she was grappling well, with she the wasn't of Hillary. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that people reacted so strongly across a, you know, a spectrum. It wasn't just that Elizabeth Warren took it on, but that, you know, on Twitter, that, you know, people are sort of, you know, pouncing on those and challenging those assumptions, which on one hand makes it a lot more fraught to be a reporter because you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that by accident because mm -hmm. I don't I'm sure that reporter did not, you know, intend to. Also, reporters don't write headlines. Well, there's always yes. that. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. And they don't always, right, they don't always get to pick what they're writing about either. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, you know, something, it, it's good, but it makes it more challenging. There's also the question that, that I know pollsters and I'm sure reporters grapple with, which is describing the vote motivations of people when the actual motivation is sexism or is racism. Um, and how to describe that in a way that, you know, can you use the term? Can you describe what it is and let the reader draw their own conclusions? You know, what, what is sort of the state of thinking or your own state of practice as far as describing motivations of voters that Try are Try not to describe. You know, I think you always let people's own words speak for themselves. And in those cases, like, don't even try to paraphrase. You know, if somebody says something and you just, you know, especially if you're doing sort of, you know, man on the street kind of voter things, I just, I usually would default to uh, just having them use their own words. Um, yeah. Yeah, what's That's your right. thought about the way that you mentioned, for instance, she pushed back against the Politico story. Um, she hasn't, you know, for instance, apologized about the DNA thing, how that was rolled out. There are still obviously native groups that are mm -hmm. pretty upset with not just the action itself, but also sort of the, that also gets into a media meta situation where they're now upset about articles saying that it was overblown. So how is Elizabeth Warren grappling with these kinds of meta-narratives about her campaign um, in, in, what you, in what you're seeing? Does she seem to want to go after these or just kind of hope that everyone else discusses it and she can just focus on her own thing? Again, I think it's kind of too early to say just because, you know, she's just getting out there. I thought it was interesting what she did do with the likability thing, though it also seemed that the initial backlash was more organic than, than that. And she, I mean, she has a good knack, whether it's her or her team. I mean, she's hired um, you know, somebody from Obama's team. She's made team, some good hires in right, Iowa. Yeah, you know, who are very, she has some very savvy folks on her kind of digital uh, 
uh, and communications front. She's some good people. But in either way, you know, she, she does have a decent and sometimes masterful uh, sense of, you know, how to, how to communicate, whether it be by social media. I mean, sometimes, it's not always. I mean, I think she got pretty roundly, uh, at least by the chattering classes, that Instagram video. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't, I mean, her supporters probably loved it. So I'm not sure it always matters what the chattering classes <laughs> think. Anyway, so in some cases, yeah, you see her taking on these criticisms head on. Like when she was in Iowa, she made some, you know, using humor to kind of get at, uh, undermine the issue of, you know, women can't be, uh, you know, can't be presidential material. Mm -hmm. It's and, and then the, you know, the quiet car little video was, was you know, clever. Yeah, saying that, that but in the Good DNA stuff, car, yeah. yeah, in the DNA stuff, she seems like you know they've they've said her their piece and she's just gonna move on past it. Has her talking points and is gonna just hope people stop focusing on that. Yeah, which we'll have to wait and see. Yes. So, uh, Vicky McGrady, the Boston Globe, will definitely be having you back often. But um, please help us give a thank you to Vicky. So again, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you to WeWork for hosting us. Thank you for not throwing a horseshoe at us at any point. I don't think our puns were that bad. We're fine. They and were. I'll, you would have been justified. Uh, don't, please don't do that. Uh, and thank you again to our whole production team who helped make this happen. Uh, we would literally be silent without you. So thank you. I'm Steve Gazzella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. And our producer is a name that you may be familiar with. You've been listening for, listening for a long time, Hannah Shinatri, back on the horse race. Producer emeritus. <laughs> <laughs> thank so you all thank for joining you. us and find us online wherever you get your pods.